This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Sarah Sheridan is a Scottish author who writes historical novels based on the real-life stories of late Georgian and early Victorian explorers. She has also penned a highly successful series of cosy crime novels set in 1950s Brighton, a brace of children's picture books, and in 2016 she founded a perfume brand called Reek, whose signature scent, Damn Rebel Bitches, has been called the first feminist fragrance. History, she says, is a treasure chest of stories, and her latest novel, The Fair Botanists, is built round a gem of a tale. Set in Edinburgh in 1822, it reimagines the suspense ahead of King George IV's inaugural visit, against the background of the extraordinary spectacle of a parade of trees passing through the city on horse-drawn carts, on the way from the old botanical garden to their new home. The Fair Botanists is narrated by Kathleen McCarran. A small crowd gathers on the street outside the McNabs cottage on days when the trees set off for the new garden at Broomlaw, a mile and a half distant. The dew is fresh on the leaves, shimmering in the sunshine as the first of eight carts bearing precious cargo rolls through the gates onto the road. A barefoot girl of no more than six years of age jumps up and down in excitement, her face traced with grime though she must be on her way to the dame school. Look, Jamie, look, she squeals. It is an extraordinary sight. Alder and ash, cedar and fir, oak and willow, trees of twenty, thirty and forty feet transplanted into huge wooden barrels proceeding one behind the other. The cart horses bent to their task, hauling them up the gentle slope, the huge wheels turning slowly as they make their way towards town. Twigs quiver and branches sway, though there is no breeze on this summer morning. The gardeners smirk. This work, they know, is historic. People will remember seeing it their whole lives, the transplantation of acres of ground, shrub by shrub and tree by tree, back-breaking work though it is. They have been pioneering the process for several weeks. Nobody has ever attempted it before, not on this scale. The head gardener, William McNabb, watches each cart as it leaves, checking that every tree is secure before taking his place on the last wagon. He looks up and waves goodbye to his wife, Betty, standing at the window of the upper floor, holding their youngest so the infant can see the spectacle as it recedes up the hill towards town. The child will remember this as a fairy tale, Unsure if the mass of moving leaf and branch that dwarfs his father's frame is any more real than the Kelpies, goblins and fairies whom his sister Catherine spins into diverting stories for her younger siblings every night before bed. Sarah Sheridan, welcome to My Life in Books. Hello there, how are you today? As we've just heard, The Fair Botanist starts with this extraordinary spectacle of fully grown trees being transported through Edinburgh in 1822. And that's actually something that happened. Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a gift, really, if you're a novelist, to find out that um, William McNabb, who was the head gardener at the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh at that time, had sort of created and developed this process to move the garden from halfway up Leith Walk down to the new, larger, swankier site, if you like, at Inverleith. And um, he was really quite pioneering in that. And um, he actually lost very few trees and plants, I think something like 3% of the trees died during the course of the process. But some of them were really enormous, really well established. So there was an alder tree, I think was that largest one, which was about 46 feet high. 
and um, he and his gardeners extracted it along with all the other plants on what was a, a, a fairly large site anyway uh, and trundled them up Leith Walk and down Broughton Lone and over to the new garden. So um, I looked I looked in the archives for images of this extraordinary thing. Obviously, we are in an age which is pre-photography, um, but I have yet to find anything. I'm still kind of looking because for a novelist, sometimes your historical research is never over. And I would love to find an image, be somebody doing a sketch or something of this process, but it seems to have gone unrecorded. So when I found out about it, I was like, that's a gift. Well, hopefully someone out there listening has a lithograph or something stored away somewhere. (laughs) Now, the Botanical Garden was there for the benefit of the medical school in Edinburgh, which itself was at the heart of the Enlightenment. We're talking about an Edinburgh that has been the centre of the Enlightenment, has really thrived both in terms of cross-fertilisation of ideas, but also out of commodities like tea, pineapples, strawberries that make their first appearance in in the book, (laughs) and the century plant, which is at the heart of the intrigue of this novel. Could you introduce us to it, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's actually quite a common plant nowadays. It's very common in the Americas. So uh, it's an aloe. It's giant. It's absolutely huge. um, And it flowers uh, very rarely. Um, It's a very operatic plant. Once it flowers, it spreads its seeds and it dies. uh, And and that's kind of the end of the century plant. But in Europe in 1822, there are probably I don't know, four plants over the whole of Europe. They were really, really rare. And so they were very much sought after this kind of magnificent, huge aloe that uh, has this spray of yellow flowers and then, you know, dies. And and before it flowers, it sends up a kind of very huge um, stem for the flowers to go up to, which is, of course, to try and spread the seeds as far as possible once the flowers have bloomed. And again, when I heard about that, I thought, well, that's the plant that's going to be the centre of this intrigue because you can understand how in 1822 everyone would have been very excited about it and about it finally, finally flowering. And as every commodity broker knows, its rarity and and its (laughs) operatic nature adds to its value. And this is the dichotomy about the botanical garden. It grows some fantastically rare plants, but it's actually rather underfunded. Poor William McNabb can barely feed his family, and yet these incredible riches could be made. And he has a decision, feed his family or play by the rules that are put in place for him by a rather short-sighted keeper of the gardens. Mm. It's a situation he really was in. Both of these people were real people. Uh, Robert Graham, the Regius keeper, was actually on a thousand pounds a year as a professor uh, who was responsible for the gardens and, and gave lectures at the university on the subject of the plants, among other things. I mean, Robert didn't employ William, so it was the previous Regius keeper uh, who employed William McNabb and brought him up from Kew Gardens with a promise that he would be on this fairly rubbish wage of, uh, I think it's £80 a year, um, which for someone in that position isn't a great deal of money at that time. Um, uh, and so it really was quite unfair on poor William McNabb. And I, I, when I was in the archive at the Botanics doing the research for the book, I uncovered all kinds of information around Robert McNabb receiving sort of gifts from people who were obviously trying to curry his favour and having this constant struggle not only to feed his family, but also to educate his sons. And there's no free schooling. Of course, William McNabb is not the only man to see the potential of the century plant. Perhaps the most fascinating character, uh, certainly the most vibrant character, I think, in the book, is Belle Brodie, a courtesan who, well, just goes to prove that everything, including sex, is a commodity. So Belle Brodie was actually the first character that I came up with, and she is fictional, but she is based on a number of high-class courtesans that worked and lived and were really quite famous in, uh, actually, all over the UK at the time. 
She is the great granddaughter of a duke, but she is illegitimate. And uh, she is faced with a choice, I suppose. She realizes uh, she's a pretty sharp cookie when she's maybe 15 or 16, uh, that her family have sent her to the country to be educated and that they're just hoping she'll stay quiet and be good. Um, but she has this option that she could have a gentleman caller. And actually, in the end, Belle decides to hedge her bets. She has two gentleman callers who keep her in a very grand style in a house just outside the city limits of Edinburgh. And this is another uh, sort of marker, if you like, for Belle being super clever about how she does what she does, in that in Edinburgh at this time, if you were caught hooring, they called it hooring, the, the kind of punishment you might get handed down from the magistrate would be to be shrived, so they might cut your hair uh, and also send you out beyond the city limits because Edinburgh city magistrates just wanted to get these hooers out of their town. But of course, Belle lives just over the city limits. And so for her, that's home. <laughs> so yeah, she's she's a very glamorous kind of figure, very practical. And I, when I write historical fiction, I like to come up with figures that work with the history. They're very much what you expect. And some figures work despite the history. And so we think of women in history as being very subdued, particularly aristocratic women, having a lot of rules and regulations around how they are able to behave. And Belle kind of overcomes that, if you like. She creates your understanding as the reader of the history by not doing what you're expecting, not doing what she's supposed to. Uh, and when I construct a story, I try and find both kinds of characters to work together. So on the other side of Belle and her wildness and her freshness, if you like, and her uh, intel emotional intelligence is Elizabeth, who is a, a relation of the Ruffett family. The Ruffett family really lived in Inverleith House. They were the people who had owned the land that the Botanics was founded in. And Belle befriends Elizabeth and they are are, are two sides of that coin because Elizabeth has always played by the rules. Yeah, and Belle is very much a child of the Enlightenment. She has made a study of famous and successful courtesans such as Lady Emma Hamilton, who was Admiral Nelson's mistress. Yes, you absolutely. This is exactly what she she has done. She has made a conscious choice. It's not something that she fell into, that this is the best course of action for her. And her worst dread is that she would be married off and some man would have complete control of her. She's absolutely not having any of that. <laughs> Independence is absolutely at the core of her being. And she, she also realises that she has a limited shelf life, that she needs to invest in something else if she is going to have lifelong independence. And her solution is to develop a love potion, which, mm. well, the vital ingredient could well be provided <laughs> by the century plant. Yeah, so these courtesans, you know, 30 was old. And Belle knows this and she fully intends to live till 80. And she has quite a lot of money, really, but she really needs to make some investments. And she is, a, as you say, a woman of the Enlightenment. She's highly educated and she realizes that smell is very important to people. And she begins to play around really as a kind of side hustle uh, with making various plant oils, um, really in the field of what we would call today aromatherapy. And so her principal product, actually, before she comes up with the idea of the love potion, is called Dr. Brody's Most Efficacious Ladies Bathing Oil. And it's an aromatherapy product that women can put in a hot bath and it will ease their period pains and so forth. And it's efficacious. It really does work. And so this oil is much sought after and she realizes she can make money out of this uh, and then comes up with this idea of the love potion around the visit of George IV to Edinburgh which has happening in the summer of 1822 and she realizes that there are going to be a lot of very wealthy mothers and fathers who want to pr present their daughters to all of these uh, court that is going to be descending upon Edinburgh and um, that if she can create a, a love potion and, and the Georgians were mad for love potions you know there's all different kinds of engravings and, and, and myths and um, songs and things around these sort of magical love potion that you drip in your ear or a love potion that you, you know, you smell or you eat. But, but this was something that was, you know, sort of commonly believed at the time that you could have a love potion that was going to, to work and would make somebody fall in love with you. And Belle is quite savvy. She knows that somebody that hates you isn't going to fall in love with you, but she understands the art of scent and that perhaps, you know, someone who quite likes you might 
might be a bit more encouraged by a certain kind of smell. And so that's what she sets out to create. Yes, I think it's one of my favourite passages in the book where you detail how certain scents can enhance our sensations, our, our, our desires. It's something that I, as a blind person, certainly responds to a lot more now that I've lost my sight. And actually, you also bring a blind character into the book, a young blind woman who is an expert distiller. And Belle recognises her potential for being able to isolate these scents and blend them together like a, a fine malt whiskey to produce the perfect love potion. Mm. I mean, Varys, another character that works against the tide of history. So we understand she's a Highlander, um, which means she is, you know, a Gael. So she, you know, Gales are supposed to be poor and victimized and treated unfairly. And not only is that, she's also blind. So she has this disability, if you like. Um, and so the, the, the common thing that people say about, you know, people with disabilities in history is that they were, you know, not looked after and they were bottom of the pile, really. These two things should really mitigate against her. And yet she has this incredible talent. And um, readers have really responded to Vary in the most extraordinary way. And uh, every time I do a live event, somebody will ask me a question about Vary. So when the book last year won a Scottish uh, Book of the Year at Waterstones, um, they were doing a special edition. And so I wrote a short story about how Vary got the job at the distillery. And it is really through her talent, the fact that she has this real skill in blending smells and tastes and really understands how to do that. She can just taste a whiskey and know where the water has come from. And this is, of course, marketable. It's really valuable skill and Vary doesn't undersell herself so the only thing that Vary isn't kind of ahead of the game on really is how beautiful she looks because she has mm. never seen herself she's a very beautiful woman but apart from this you know nobody is going to take advantage of, of Vary McDonald she is on it she negotiates a really good contract for herself at the distillery uh, and then she negotiates again a really good fee from Belle Brodie for helping her with this particular perfume that she requires help with and the stuff about scents in the book, you know, it's true that the key scent that sort of starts uh, Belle off on this particular quest with this particular perfume is strawberry. And strawberry is a scent that they sometimes pump into the gym because it makes men feel more energetic. And of course, this is a fantastic thing if you're a courtesan. <laughs> Belle's lovers feel great because she she has strawberries around the bedroom and they go home and they feel tremendously invigorated and think, well, this is fantastic. This woman's amazing. But it, it's partly the smell. And large department stores use smell as well. They'll, you know, pump particular smells into particular departments at very low levels. So you're really hardly aware of it. But it, it provokes you to think that something perhaps in the shoe department, they might pump in a low level smell of leather. And it makes you feel that the shoes are very good quality because the place somehow smells of leather. And so there's some real hard science behind Bell's project. Now, as you say, Vari is far from a stereotypical blind victim, which we so often find in literature. And she has a boyfriend, a beau, who is the illegitimate son of Rabbi Burns, the, the Scottish poet. And yet she's the only one who doesn't clock the resemblance. And it's a reminder that Edinburgh is a small city. It's a city of wagging tongues. And it's ideal for the sort of intrigue and suspense of this novel, where there is a bit of a crime caper going on in the background. And right into the centre of this, you introduce the arch wheeler dealer, Sir Walter Scott. Mm. I mean, Sir Walter Scott was in Edinburgh this summer. There was a committee that actually was charged with um, organising the King's visit. But it was really Sir Walter that kind of strode ahead and took responsibility for it. And so I think dropping in these real characters because they were really there was a really fun way to play around with people thinking, oh, yeah, that was real. I know about that. You know, there's certain things in the book that I think are touchstones for people to say, oh, yeah, I know the 
the Botanic Garden moved and, oh, yes, yeah, Sir Walter Scott and the King's Visit, I know that that happened, and creating a kind of romp, if you like, because that's what it was commissioned to be. That's what we talked about from the very beginning. What if you brought Edinburgh of that period to life in the spirit of kind of a cross between Jane Austen and a restoration comedy, lively but of its time? And so it was about taking the bits of Edinburgh that people know about and then sort of weaving, if you like, this romp of a plot in between and creating fictional characters that worked well with the with the real ones. So creating people that would work around principally the men, because most of the real characters are men, although there is one real life female botanist called Lady Henrietta Liston, who was back in Edinburgh from 1821. She'd been traveling, she came back to Edinburgh and she appears in the book and she was in real life in correspondence with William McNabb and somewhat involved with the botanics. So she comes in as well and, and building these, these sort of uh, fictional characters that could really highlight what Edinburgh was like this as you're talking about sort of more gossipy town so yeah there's this sense if you like of uh, something that weaves around these real characters including Sir Walter Scott and and he was a really interesting character I mean he was lots of things that I, I probably wouldn't like he was a sort of high Tory he was pretty patriarchal but he was an honest face of the patriarchy he 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 did a lot of charity work he was genuinely involved in a kind of hands-on way in um, improving the lives of people around him he founded schools he was very generous with female writers of the era and I, I wanted to try and make you feel that you had met him in the street to feel like you're walking around Edinburgh and this stuff is happening around you but it's 1822 and the king's about to arrive you know and and, and that was a, a different kind of approach to writing about Scott I think than than many other writers might have had absolutely and and it's fascinating to see how central he was to this royal visit and we should say that King George IV was the first British monarch to visit Scotland in 120 years, I believe. It had been a long time. I mean, there were Jacobite uprisings, of course, in, in mm. two main ones, but there have been various other ones as well. So the kings had kept out of Scotland, if you like, the queens as well, because we had Queen Anne in there too. Uh, and Scott sort of very cleverly created this visit. He did his own knitting, if you like. I was knitting mm. my story. Scott was knitting uh, bits of the Highland Revival that were actually going on so that this became, you know, the focus for the resurgence of tartan as a fashion fabric, really. Which had actually been banned, hadn't it? Yeah, I mean, it hadn't been blanket banned, but uh, mm. a lot of Highlanders had worn tartan coats during the Jacobite uprising. That was how you told her who a Highlander was. So men, for example, were not allowed to wear tartan coats. That was that had been banned. And this brought it back into the mainstream, back into fashion, and created a whole kind of fiction, if you like, that that into the Victorian era really took off once Queen Victoria went to Balmoral and started spending her summers in Scotland. Suddenly, tartan became very fashionable, and this idea of clan tartans, which really hadn't existed before, uh, became a thing that was very marketable. And 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 so, yeah, he created a launchpad, if you like, for fictional Scottish culture. <laughs> um, <laughs> And he was brilliant at it. You know, his whole, whole historical novels that he later wrote sort of tied in with that as well. So, yeah, he's a pretty extraordinary figure. And, and you know, it's, I find it extraordinary that you can walk around Edinburgh and, and you know, the Georgian city is, is, is very much still there, as it was pretty much. It's a very literary book, as well as being a great romp. And Sir Walter Scott is certainly not the only Scottish novelist who you introduce through its pages. Could you very briefly introduce us to the female novelists who, well, in, in your mind, uh, certainly one of them ranks beside Jane Austen? Oh, yeah, definitely. So Mary Brunton, who uh, came from Orkney and eloped with her brother's tutor, who's called Alexander Brunton. And um, the real life history is that they uh, came down to Edinburgh and Alexander got a job at the university as a professor of zoology. And Mary started to write novels and her novels were massively successful in their day, hugely successful. They were translated into French, which is kind of the best thing that can happen to your novel uh, if you're knocking about at the end of the 18th century. It's translated into French 
said, you've made it. Uh, and Mary's books were, and they, they were called things like disobedience. And, you know, they had all that pride and prejudice. It was that sort of fashionable thing. And, and when uh, Jane Austen uh, read Mary Brunton's first novel, she, uh, she, was, she was a bit sniffy about it. Um, but I think she was maybe just a little bit jealous. It is really very, very good. And um, unfortunately, as many women did in this era, uh, Mary Brunton was in the middle of writing her third novel and she died in childbirth. And she's buried alongside Alexander uh, in the Canongate Kirk down on the high street in Edinburgh. Uh, so we lost a great writer there, really. And um, Susan Ferrier is a sort of upper middle class Edinburgh, the youngest of the Ferrier daughters. There are eight Ferrier daughters, I think, or nine Ferrier daughters. Robert Burns at one point writes a story to the amazing Ferrier girls. And she wrote a book. And um, when it was released, it was released anonymously. She was very embarrassed about this. Women were not supposed to earn a living or have stuff for sale or put themselves up for anything. And um, people obviously around Edinburgh being the gossipy city, as you've mentioned, uh, thought that perhaps Sir Walter Scott had written this book. And Walter Scott said, oh, no, it wasn't me. It was somebody, a much better writer. And he was right. She was a much better writer than him. <laughs> she wrote a further two books um, and then retired from the spotlight because she said she couldn't bear to be in the spotlight. It was too embarrassing for her as a lady to be in the spotlight. So we again lost, you know, the other books she might have written had society been more accepting of women achieving things and having public success. Well, I'm glad to see a little bit of uncommon humility from Sir Walter Scott. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And as we've already mentioned, they weren't the only women to be at the forefront of their chosen disciplines in the 1820s. We talked briefly about the explorer and botanist Henrietta Liston. And if readers want to find out more about her... You wrote something recently that can give us more background to her. The National Library of Scotland has an archive of her papers, and I've actually written a short story for their website, which you can go on and download, which is about how Henrietta first met Belle, who she befriends the winter before the book actually happens. She's a really fascinating character, but they're all fascinating. We can't talk about all of them read. I know time presses on and after the break I want to explore your novel The Secret Mandarin that has another Georgian botanist at the heart of the plot and, well, espionage as well. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844 844- one two two one 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 one. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Sarah Sheridan. Just before the break, we were talking about the botanist and explorer Henrietta Liston. But now I want to explore your 2017 book, The Secret Mandarin, which centres around another botanist, explorer and possibly spy, Robert Fortune. Can you introduce us to him, please? Yeah, I mean, these two worlds are actually linked, although I wrote The Secret Mandarin, obviously, some years before I wrote A Fair Botanist. So uh, Robert Fortune was brought up on the Kello estate in Berwickshire. He's a, a kind of gardener's son, and he gets apprenticed in the 1830s to the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh. So they have that link. And then he ends up going down to Kew. He's a very talented man, and he runs the orchid houses in Kew, where he gets headhunted by the East India Company. Company. And the East India Company is by 1842. By this time, Britain's just won the Opium War. But the big takeaway for the East India Company is that if they have trouble in China, they lose their tea trade. All tea comes from China at this point. And so they decide they want to set up their own uh, tea plantations in the Himalayas. But China is a closed country and they don't know how to do it. Somebody has to go into China find what these plants are. At the time, there is a belief that there's a different plant for green tea and black tea. Uh, But of course, it's the same plant. It's a different process that that creates the two different kinds of tea. So uh, they get hold of Robert Fortune and he is sent out to China to go in behind enemy lines, if you like. Uh, And 
it's really quite extraordinary when you read what he did. You're like, that can't possibly have worked. He 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 bought some Chinese clothes and a wig and and um, a couple of Chinese servants and went in behind uh, the line that Europeans were not supposed to cross. And having no Chinese and having blue eyes, in fact, he kind of somehow got away with this. They said he was a Mandarin from the far north and he went around China. And now the Life expectancy in the 1840s for plant hunters is is low. Once you leave the UK, your average life expectancy is probably around 16 weeks, four months. And so Robert Fortune disappears for nearly three years and everyone just assumes he is dead. And in triumph, he then comes out on the other side of China to where he has gone in with uh, something like 17,000 tea plants, I think over 30 tea gardeners that he has bribed and ships all of this to the Himalayas where the, there are some fledgling tea plantations, but not the expertise or uh, some of the particular sort of planting that he's bringing and effectively founds the Indian tea industry. It is a fabulously successful example of industrial espionage. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what it is. You're right. <laughs> and it wasn't just the diseases that he could have contracted upcountry in China that could have killed him. He would have been sentenced to death if he'd been caught. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were five open ports in China where uh, Europeans were welcome. And beyond that, if you were caught, you, you could be sentenced to death, um, as you say. So it was a very risky business. I mean, there's something really fascinated for me about these very early empire sort of explorers and adventurers who basically say, I don't know what I'm going into. There's no maps but don't worry about that. I'll just take some sandwiches and some buttons and I'll be fine. And off they go and do these amazing journeys. And there's quite a lot of them. Many of them are Scottish because the Scottish working classes are educated and they're prepared to take the risk. Because if you succeed at this, you make a lot of money. If you fail, you, you die effectively. Um, there's something incredibly gung-ho and slightly insane and very attractive to a novelist about these kinds of characters. But I have to say, Robert Fortune, when I read his papers, he wrote five memoirs uh, over the course of his life. And one of them is about this trip into China, his first trip. And he he is all the ists. You know, he's colonialist, he's racist, he's classist, he's sexist. And I read his memoir and thought, oh, my goodness, he's like incredibly tough and really unpleasant. Mm. And I don't think a reader will stick with him. So when I came to decide how to write the story, I decided that the story wasn't directly going to be his story. It was going to be the story of one of the poor women who were subject to fortunes, um, <laughs> attentions or care, if you like, uh, his sister-in-law. And it was going to be told from her point of view about what an idiot he was. And, um, and that would allow you know, her to go on this journey, which she's completely fictional. She didn't really go on the journey, but it would allow her to go on this very exciting journey, but not subject the reader to having to sympathise with, you know, someone who has all the ists. It, it's a bit like having a Bond girl turn around and start criticising Sean Connery era 007, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's a very glamorous way of putting it. But yeah, I suppose it is. I mean, I'd be quite interested in watching that movie. <laughs> now, as you say, you introduce this female character, Mary, his disgraced sister-in-law, who has had uh, an illegitimate child by a member of the peerage. And of course, she's suffering whilst he goes on with his reputation somewhat enhanced. And Robert Fortune forces Mary to accompany him initially to get her out of the country, but then she becomes an intrinsic part of this mission to China. And she dresses as a young man, which gives her all sorts of freedoms that she might not have otherwise had. I mean, she's an actress in London at the beginning of the book, and she has this disgrace. And of course, Robert is on the rise and, and hates anything that isn't truly conformist. And she definitely isn't that. And they try to ship her off on her own to India, which is where very often troublesome women were sent because <laughs> it was quite easy to get married. And you could send your, you know, your disgraced relations, female relations off to India, and they would land up married to somebody out there and it was fine. And so um, that's their sort of hope for her. But she gets shipwrecked. 
and get sent back, which is, of course, Robert Fortune's worst nightmare. And this tea job is actually his big break from his point of view. You know, this is huge. He's going to make his reputation. He's going to be able to write about it. He's going to be able to lecture about this trip if he's successful. Uh, and so she's a huge risk to him. And he thinks, I'll bloody take her away myself when she comes back from the shipwreck. Uh, and yeah, so she ends up going all the way into China with him as well. And, and it's an education for her. You know, she never would have got to go there otherwise. And slowly, very slowly during the course of the book, they come to an accommodation that, you know, perhaps he's not quite as bad as she thought he was originally. So, And she does make him aware of some of his shortcomings. And I wondered if that was something that you divined from his memoirs that he was aware of himself. No. <laughs> he had a bad case of the ists till the day he died, I think. He was he was a true colonialist, you know, he mm. really thought he was superior to any of the cultures because he ended up going into Japan um and you know various other places around around the region. He became the guy that if you wanted to go in and find some new botanical material somewhere uh, on that side of the world, it, Robert Fortune was your man. Um and so he was lauded and feted for his success and his wife Jane Penny who was in real life I created Mary Penny as his sister-in-law and he, and he probably had sister-in-laws and things as well but this is you know she's totally fictional but Jane stayed in London and brought up the kids basically and he would come back and give lectures and 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 you know they rose you know he was a gardener's son you know he's probably mm. brought up barefoot on the Kello estate uh, and so you know he became fetid and upper middle class and had this great house and uh, his kids went to you know proper schools and were educated and went on to become uh, important in the botanical world in their own right so he had no reason to question himself, I suppose is what I'm saying. Everything he did worked. So no, I, I give him a challenge that I suspect he probably never actually experienced, which of course makes him nicer than he probably actually was. <laughs> ah, the restorative power of fiction. <laughs> <laughs> now, espionage and daring do are also central to your other series of books, the Mirabelle Bevan books, which are cosy crime noir in 1950s Brighton. Mirabelle is a former Secret Service agent who has... Oh, well, you don't know that. Ooh, red. Ooh, oh, red. Oh, okay. Oh, gosh, sorry. <laughs> Um, she, she she might well be, but yeah. all the way through the series, people hint at this and Mirabelle never gives anything away because that's what she's like. So maybe she is. This is why I was never employed by Her Majesty's <laughs> Government to do any, anything secret. Um, what is it that really attracts you to, to that period? Because it's very different to the late Georgian and Victorian periods. I mean, that late Georgian, early Victorian, of course, is, is when the empire takes off. The empire's existed, but it really begins to take off. And you get the British take over in India in a way that they haven't taken over before, and they get a lot of new territories, and it just it, it, it begins to really rocket off. And, of course, the 50s is where it begins to tail off. So the British pull out of Palestine, they pull out of India. It, it really begins to tail off there. And I think, I think that's why I feel so attracted to these two eras. And they are, I mean, put me in a museum, put me in an art gallery, put me in a library. I'm immediately drawn to things that come from those two eras. And it, it's sort of quite an extraordinary thing. And at the moment, I'm thinking of writing something that's set in 1919. And I'm really like, oh, that's new for me. You know, it, it feels different to be attracted to that time. So I wonder if because I finished with Mirabelle, because the Mirabelle Bevan series is a nine book series that runs from 1951 to 1959. So it's really an examination of social history, if you like, of Britain in the 50s through the medium of Mirabelle Bevan, who is this character who's come through World War II uh, and at the beginning of the series is quite depressed and down and has had a really difficult time and, like the whole of Britain, manages to cheer up over the course of the 1950s <laughs> and re-establish a kind of life for herself. Uh, and so it's a real examination. The 50s is a very interesting decade for the reason that every year is slightly different. Lots of decades, you know, 1835 and 1837, sort of the same world. But during the 50s, the world really changes every single year. They're huge progress, huge development. And so Mirabelle lives through that and is, is cheered by it, is comforted by it, and gets her life back, really, 
during the course of the of the 50s gets over her bereavements and her depression and the things she had to do during the war to survive. But I think because the series is now finished, I've completed it, I've done my nine books, maybe I'm looking around for another like, oh, but what happened in 1919 after World War One? I? I think maybe that's what it is. But certainly, you know, 10 years ago when I started all of this, I, I was immediately drawn to those two eras. And I think that's why, but it wasn't a conscious thing. It was just like, oh, I seem to be very interested in this and in that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sense a bit of an adoration of um, Agatha Christie in uh, mm. the pages of Mirabel Bevan. Are you more of a fan of Poirot or Miss Marple? What do you think, Red? It's definitely <laughs> Miss Marple. I, mean, I, I love Poirot so. as well. And <laughs> there's a lot of amazing short stories that don't have either of them in them. But Miss mm. Marple, you know, she's my granny. She's everybody's granny, really, isn't she? And I grew up on that. I remember finding my first Agatha Christie book. And I can't actually really remember which one it was, but we were on holiday somewhere. And the house I grew up in didn't have any books. And so my mother's dyslexic and she doesn't read. My father's businessman, he was very busy and never bothered with books. And so we were on holiday somewhere and there was an Agatha Christie on the shelf in this house that we'd rented on holiday. And I read it and I remember thinking, that's good. I wonder if she's written anything else (laughs) because I was about 10 and I didn't know. I hadn't heard of her. And then you know, discovering in the local library back in Edinburgh that, yeah, she had. And so really ripping through those stories, which were so accessible. Mm. And yeah, Miss Marple, Miss Marple, my connection is always, of course, with the female characters more than anything else. So yeah, I'm I'm a Marpleite. She's a lot less smug than Poirot as well. (laughs) (laughs) She is. (laughs) The Mirabelle Bourbon books have all been recorded as audiobooks Eight of them by one of my favourite narrators. I love Penelope Freeman. She just (laughs) nails it every time. However, London Calling, the second novel narrated by yourself. Yeah, I know. I don't know why they asked me to do that. I think they asked me to do it to see if I was any good at it. And then we're like, oh, no, she's not really any good at it. But they'd done the recording by then. (laughs) They got her back in because she was much better than I was. And it involved being locked up in it was almost like an underground bunker in Gateshead somewhere so I went down on the train and stayed over and did the reading and I think they were curious about whether I would be good at it because I've got an okay radio voice but actually I mean I'm obviously nowhere as good near as good as somebody you know who's professional and does it all the time but then they had the recording so I guess you know I wasn't as good right do you know, I always love hearing authors read their own books because you get the nuance <laughs> that actually a narrator will not always pick up because you spent time with the book. So actually, I thought you were very good. But, um, oh, thank you. But then again, you, you've also got very, very stiff competition with Penelope, <laughs> who, who is one of the best. So, uh, so yeah, no, I, I certainly would have quite happily read the rest of the series had you narrated them all. Well, that's very kind of you. I think that um, the publisher didn't think that. They were like, no, we're not having her back. <laughs> wow. You know, reading time is also writing time, isn't it? However, it has given you an insight into what you want from your narrators. And mm. certainly you've got another one of the absolute top narrators, Kathleen McCarran, narrating The Fair Botanists. And um, I know it was really important to you that she could get the various different dialects, including the Highland dialect Favari. Yeah, it was really important because, um, you know, if you get it wrong, anyone who's Scottish or near Scottish knows all about it and it totally would spoil the story. So they sent me a couple of recordings early on, you know, trials of just a couple of paragraphs. And I knew immediately that she was the person to do it because she got the difference between a Highland accent, the Fife accent, the Edinburgh accent, and people who were posh, people who were, you know, people who were working class. Because, you know, it's one of my bugbears, really, that quite often in historical novels, working class characters are really only a means to the end for the upper class characters. So somebody like a maid is only, you know, a good character if she does what her mistress wants her to do or she's loyal to her mistress, something like that. And I find that I find that really tiresome. And so she had, to, you know, the voice had to be able to breathe life into those characters quite as much as the, the two main characters who are quite posh as it happens. Are you a fan of audiobooks yourself or do you still prefer to pick up a paperback? 
Um, I don't actually listen to audiobooks very much. I suppose I do read, and it's quite often because I read on holidays very often, now, particularly fiction. So when I'm reading nonfiction, I can read nonfiction and write at the same time. But if I'm reading a novel, I can't write at the same time. So I've got to be on a break. And so we recently went away, actually, and I just devoured, not like devoured novels, could not stop reading novels. And I, it's... It's my favourite escape, remains my favourite escape, actually. And it's one of the rubbish things. It's probably the only rubbish thing about writing is that I can't read at the same time. Now, you mentioned that you're thinking about uh, a novel set in 1919. I also read somewhere that your next historical novel is set in Glasgow in the 1840s at the beginning of the age of photography. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. It's finished. That's why the next one I'm writing might might be set in 1919, but um, it's called The Secrets of Blyswood Square. And it's uh, a story about, again, it's two women, actually, in 1846 in Glasgow. One is posh and inherits a great deal of money. This was a thing. There was there were many Glasgow millionaires who left their fortunes to their daughters as well as their sons. It was slightly unusual in the era, but it was a Glasgow thing. And so this Glasgow heiress, who's hugely wealthy and has been brought up very strictly to be part of the Free Kirk, discovers her father has a shameful secret. He has a collection of erotic paintings of naked gods and goddesses and, and statues and things and she's horrified and shocked and doesn't know what to do about this it's a terrible sin in her eyes and she basically feels she has to get rid of it and the other main character is a working class woman who is apprenticed uh, at the studio in edinburgh david octavius hills a real life character is a very very famous early photographer probably the most famous early scottish photographer with his partner robert adamson and she uh, gets some money very little money actually compared to the kind of money that the heiress has and comes to glasgow and sets up a photographic studio there and um inadvertently actually initially takes a photograph which is considered very risque because the lady in the photograph is showing her ankle because Victorian erotic early erotic photography in Victoriana is hilarious it's just somebody showing their ankle and everyone's terribly shocked about it yeah so these two characters can almost solve each other's problems actually during the course of the book and I won't tell you too many more of the secrets of Blyswood Square but there are a few And it was a joy to write because I've recently moved to Glasgow uh, and I've moved to the area right in the city centre where a lot of the book is set. Um, and so I'm having that experience of wandering around thinking, oh, there's so-and-so's house and there's the place that this thing happened. Although, you know, Georgian Glasgow is not as intact as Georgian Edinburgh, obviously. Well, that's a treat in store for me. I can't wait. And, uh, well, doubtless I'll need to go on holiday to take that away with me. <laughs> Sarah Sheridan, thank you so much for sharing so many insights into your wonderful novels with us today. And I hope that before you leave, you will share some of the books that have resonated with you through the books of your life. Yeah, I mean, I'm not quite sure how many you want, but I I have a lot of them. (laughs) Well, I'm going to make it very easy for you because you only need to choose three. So first of all, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? I I never really wanted to become an author, but I fell in love with reading very young. And I think it was probably Wuthering Heights. I also had the hots for Heidi, but I when you reread Heidi, it's appalling. So I think it must have been Wuthering Heights, which is excellent. And I remember sitting up in my bed and I think I must have been like, I don't know, 11 or 12 or something, even if that old, and being terrified at Kathy knocking at the window. And of course, I'm a child of the 80s. You know, I was born in 68. So my formative years really were in the 80s. So uh, Kate Bush's Wuthering Heights was really formative then too. It kind of reinforced it. So, but I do remember before before hearing that, before that was out, reading the book and being transfixed by that very scene. So I think it has to be that one. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? There is a book that I reread very regularly. It's the first novel by an American writer called T.C. Boyle, and it's called Water Music. And it's the story of Mungo Park, who in 1799, he decides he's going to go and map the Niger and actually doesn't manage it, but goes back in 1803. And it, it bubbles with life. It was the first historical novel I read that was a time machine. 
that really took me back. And it was a present from my husband, actually now husband, he was a boyfriend at the time. And I go back to it all the time for inspiration. So yeah, I think it, I think it really has to be Water Music by T.C. Boyle or I mean, I also love the short stories of Lorna Moon. Lorna Moon was an early 20th century Scottish writer who went to Holyrood and ended up writing screenplays. And she actually had an illegitimate child with uh, Cecil B. DeMille's brother. And she died young. She died of consumption. Um, and she is, I think, the best short story writer I've ever read. She just ratchets up the story and it's these tiny changes in the way that her characters are thinking or acting that make a huge difference. And so sometimes if I feel I want to experience real talent, a different kind of talent, I, I go back and read Lorna Moon. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? I loved Matrix by Lauren Groff, American writer who wrote about a medieval uh, abbess and uh, a nunnery effectively and I thought that book was just fantastic you know I read it I, I can sometimes when you're reading you remember your surroundings really well because you're so engaged that all your senses are switched on and I read it in the flat we had before we came to Glasgow so I read it in Edinburgh sitting in the window seat at the front of my house with the sunshine coming in and I will never forget reading that book for the first time there I think it was just extraordinary and again it had that time machine quality of like I'm there I understand this world it's a it's a foreign world it's a, a different place it's the story of a, a noble French woman who basically gets shipped off to run this nunnery and she's the abbess and she creates this world she goes to this place which is incredibly impoverished and these nuns really have nothing they've taken their vow of poverty and she builds the community there and she reaches out as well into the community and creates a hospital and I, you know even as I'm saying it it sounds really boring but you I promise you will not be able to put it down it's a, it's a tour de force and she uh, gets involved in various political medieval political wranglings because some, some people don't like what she's doing and she stands up for herself in the most extraordinary way. And in medieval times, effectively, that means going to war and she does it. So I loved it. Sarah Sheridan, thank you so much for sharing your passion for reading with us today and for giving us some greater insight into your own wonderful historical novels. Thanks for having me. It was lovely. It's time to turn the page on another episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Zara Sheridan, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to tune in, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to leaf through our back catalogue or get in touch, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. I'm Margaret Shepherd of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.